we value your input and appreciate your continued support. Remember to explore our continuing education programs on the Multicultural Counseling Institute's website. We have a live CE webinar on January 26th, taught by Dr. Myrna Mejia on cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain with Hispanic clients. I hope to see you there. Now onward to today's episode. During the month of December, it is often a period of religious celebrations, which in many cases can be quite joyous. Unfortunately, that is not always the case for some of our clients, especially those who have experienced religious trauma. What is religious trauma? What might be some unique experiences of religious trauma in the Asian American community? And what does it mean for a religious environment to be considered high control? More importantly, in addition to the standard treatments for trauma, what are some of the interpersonal experiences we might tune into when working with Asian American clients who have experienced religious trauma? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Zen. Our guest today is Dr. Valerie Yeo, a licensed psychologist based in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Yeo's current work is in private practice, providing individual therapy and immigration-based assessments to adults. She also works with psychology and counseling trainees in supervision and teaching roles. She also leads community workshops on topics including decolonizing therapy, liberation psychology, and religious trauma. Her clinical approach involves a social justice and anti-oppressive lens rooted in liberation and community psychology. And she has a specialty experience working with racial and religious trauma with the impact of oppression amongst BIPOC communities, Asian American communities, and the queer and trans folks, and individuals who are considering leaving or have left religious and spiritual communities. Dr. Yeo believes strongly in fostering connection between all parts of ourselves. Her work is centered around navigating the way in which our socio-political environments impact our present experiences. As a Singaporean Chinese-American psychologist, Dr. Yeo will be discussing religious trauma in Asian American communities, and yet the importance of us in rooting in community for support. Dr. Yeo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you for this particular episode because one thing we haven't really discussed much this season is the issues with religious trauma. But before we get into that, can you walk us through your journey and share with us any memorable events and circumstances that may have influenced how you got into this work? Yeah, absolutely. And as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about how I had a, in some ways, a very so-called typical Asian American journey of starting out as a pre-med student. And midway through that, I decided to pivot to psychology because I realized that it was the aspect of working with people that really appealed to me about this sort of care work. And quite frankly, I think up until that point, I had kind of survived academia by staying under the radar. 
And I remember, I think it may have been my sophomore year of college, I took a really small seminar class in the psychology department of my college. And I was kind of, you know, I think I had been a bit of a wallflower in classes up until that point. And after class one day, that professor actually pulled me aside and she said to me, you don't say a lot in class, but whenever you do, it's really worth hearing. And I really encourage you to speak up more. And honestly, no teacher in my life had ever seen me in that way. And as I said, you know, I kind of survived by kind of staying under the radar of a lot of like structures of power, which included teachers at that point. And that teacher, you know, by doing that, I think she really kind of changed my life trajectory in a way. And I mean, maybe it wasn't so dramatic as that, but her comment really stuck with me. And I think to this day, that's that memory really sticks with me. It's just the power of great teachers and the lives of students and the ways that, you know, great teachers who really see their students that way can really make a really big impact. And she ended up becoming one of my mentors and she was the one who encouraged me to pursue graduate work. Actually, I don't think that was something I would have done if someone hadn't encouraged me to do that. Oh, wow. Wow, that is uh, in many ways atypical to mm. a lot of the folks who've been on the show and to have folks advocate or actually see them at undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That must've been very powerful as you were saying to essentially rattle the way you had viewed yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was so used to being just one of the crowd. I had been kind of, I think, aimless up until that point. I was pursuing pre-med because I didn't really know what I wanted to do and it felt like something I was supposed to do. And I think after taking that class, I kind of, you know, realized that it's really the aspect of people and communities that really appeal to me in this type of work. And yeah, that's what pivoted me into mental health and psychology. Okay. okay. Now, so, you know, with psychology being a very broad field and having that catalyst and mm. you getting into the field, over the years, you become more specialized in working with marginalized populations and also tapping into the issues of religious trauma. Mm. Can you share with me that path and how you started to lean into that space? Sure, yeah, I think honestly, it had so much to do with my own experiences. I think when I first entered the field, you know, I didn't really know exactly who I wanted to work with. I knew that, well, actually I think in my mind, I always knew I kind of wanted to work with marginalized folks. I just didn't really know what shape that would take. And I think a lot of what honed my experience into where it is today were my own experiences in graduate school where, you know, like I said, I didn't, I don't think I fully understood the full impact of internalized oppression and racism, especially in like academic environments and the way that those things can manifest especially in predominantly white academic environments. And I think in my program, I was at, in my year, I was probably one of maybe three to four students of color and maybe one of three like visibly not white people out of a cohort of, I did a PsyD program. So the cohort was a little bit larger at that point. And I can't remember exactly how many people were in my cohort, but yeah, I mean, we, you know, we felt very, we felt very alone, I think, but I think back a lot on those experiences and how alone 
we all felt and we kind of banded together. But at that point, I think so few of us really had the vocabulary or the frame to explain what we were going through. And, you know, I think back to that and I really sometimes wish that I could go back and, you know, kind of give myself some of this framework and give myself a lot of what I've since learned. And yet again, you know, a lot of what I've learned, I've learned through the experiences of being in a setting like that. And I think it was through a lot of my own experiences and what I wish I had known. I think those are some of the things that I wish that I could to give to other people now. And I think that really informs the way that I work with mm. communities, especially those in marginalized communities. Yeah, with the marginalized communities, being one of three f- folks who are BIPOC amongst, I think most CID programs admit maybe 30, 20, 30 mm-hmm. folks. Would you yeah. say that's accurate per cohort? Yeah, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think during my time, I mean, uh, our, even the PhD program is about or I mean, sorry, about five or six, depending how large the mm-hmm. programs are, but that's quite a bit, you know, out of 30, 20, mm-hmm. 30 folks and only, you know, three folks of color, it is very isolating. And now what about the part about religious trauma? First of all, for our listeners, how would you personally define that? Yeah, really great question. So I think religious trauma is you know, any sort of like physical or emotional or psychological response to a trauma that happened in some sort of religious or spiritual environment, which could take the form of religious abuse in some way or any other sort of adverse religious experience. And I think the religious trauma happens when these experiences kind of chronically overwhelm someone's ability to cope and to return to a sense of safety or a sense of groundedness in their body. And so in a way, you know, it's not too dissimilar from other types of trauma more broadly, but I think the trauma that happens in a religious environment can have a particular edge to it because often it has to do with people's beliefs around the sacred. And so as a result, I think, yeah, it kind of, it wounds at a very deep and specific level because of that. Hmm. And when you're talking about this the sacred connection with the uh, religious institution and i think when people are thinking about religious trauma they may immediately jump to you know uh sexual abuse right something that's more mm-hmm. defined i guess i'm thinking about more the gray space is that you're trying to explore more of the gray area not like the actual sexual abuse at the church per se mm-hmm. but something else yeah. this other category that isn't yet as explicit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny, I actually recently just ran a workshop on religious trauma where I talked about this more specifically that I think when we're looking at things like religious abuse, most of the literature out there actually has to do with sexual abuse by clergy, um, particularly within the Catholic church because of the abuse scandal that came out, I think in the early 2004 or something like that. And I think that's such an important area of research, but I think, you know, what that research kind of leaves out is that religious abuse can happen in any denomination. And, you know, I think a lot of the abuse can be perpetuated by clergy and by leaders in the church, but it can also be perpetuated by people who are not in leadership roles. And that, you know, a lot of this trauma too, can be caused more broadly by things like, you know, chronic marginalization and othering and feeling 
like an outsider if, for example, you're in a predominantly white religious or church space as a BIPOC person or as a queer and trans person who's not attending a church that, you know, is affirming of your identity and who you are. And especially if you are in a space where, you know, the like the professed values of that space are in direct contradiction to your ability to exist in the world as a full human. And I think a lot of the religious trauma that's out there right now doesn't quite get at that because it is so focused on sexual abuse by clergy, uh, which again, you know, I think it's such an important area of research, but yeah, I think it kind of leaves out a lot of that gray area that yeah, you were talking the, about. The other gray area, as you're mentioning, the othering piece or uh, mm -hmm. the sense that you don't belong. So, I mean, the obvious, more clear things, again, is the sexual abuse or uh, talking about conversion therapy and actually mm -hmm. facilitating that type of right. treatment. From your experience, you know, what are some of the types of religious trauma that you're seeing? Yeah, really great question. And, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of clients who have religious trauma or experience religious trauma, they it tends not to be the presenting issue that people are seeking therapy about. So most people are seeking therapy for things like mood instability or issues and trouble maintaining relationships or like, you know, trouble at work or something like that. It tends to be something a little bit more general. And then it's through the process of therapy and getting to know the client. And especially if I know that, you know, that type of church or potentially like a high control religious space might be a part of their history. And it's only then that, you know, the, the religious trauma piece starts to unfold, but it tends not to be the thing that people are seeking therapy for. So I think often when we talk about religious trauma, we're really talking about trauma more broadly because the religious trauma that I'm talking about, you know, I think especially, and I, I'll say, um, you know, a lot of my expertise in religious trauma tends to be in Christian environments, more specifically kind of these high control Christian environments, more specifically where, you know, it's not just like a belief system, but it's a full, it's kind of given to you as a full way of life. So it informs your decisions around, you know, how to have a family, how to have relationships, how to pursue partnerships you know, beliefs about afterlife, beliefs about the meaning of life and the world. You know, it even affects things like your relationship to money, to politics, to hobbies, to rest, to work, to your own body. And I, what I often find, you know, for people who are coming in who have religious trauma, often, you know, I'm listening out for things like shame. I think shame is a really big piece of religious trauma. And especially for people who have been in religious environments that really advocate for purity culture, which, you know, is this culture that really, I mean, a big, there's this really big push that sex can only happen in a very specific context being, you know, marriage between essentially heterosexual marriage. And, you know, where people are kind of shamed for having very normal body responses like in adolescence for example when puberty hits like there's some very normal things that happen on a biological level where people are not given education about that and in fact are told that these very normal body responses you're having are wrong or are sinful which then you know i mean in the same way as 
you know, thinking about that sense of being othered, you know, when you're told that something that's totally out of your control, that it's a part of you is wrong, then you start to feel like you are wrong inherently. And so, you know, that question of, you know, what is religious trauma? Like, I think it, it can be so hard to define because it really, like, it's, I think about it like a ripple effect that there are the religious beliefs kind of at a cognitive level. But what I often find is that people who are coming in to see me often no longer have those beliefs where they've kind of moved away cognitively, where they might no longer identify as religious, you know, or as Christian. But a lot of the impact of these beliefs and the impact of being in these environments remain in their body and continue to affect them at a level of shame, you know, that someone might not understand why they feel really ashamed about certain things. And then those are the things that we end up working on. Mm, mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I'm also thinking about our identities. You know, when you're bringing in the example of sexuality, puberty, particularly amongst the Asian American community, mm. sex is rarely talked about. And I'm just making yeah. an assumption based on my own experience, you know? And so I'm curious, you know, when one of the areas that you're talking about with religious trauma for Asian American communities, I was curious if there are certain nuances that you've detected that maybe if let's say a client comes in working with a therapist and the client is Asian, what are some of the nuances that they might want to tend to or pay attention to? Mm -hmm. you know, I find that most people coming in don't really have a frame for religious trauma. A lot of people have never heard the term religious trauma. So again, often what people are coming in to address are things like ruptures in the family dynamic or you know, ruptures in relationship dynamics in some way. And it's through getting to know them and kind of the unfolding of like the roots of, you know, what they're going through that um, we kind of uncover the religious trauma part. And I think especially with Asian American clients, you know, of course, this is a generalization, of course, you can find exceptions to, you know, most things, but broadly, what I see is that I think a lot of Asian Americans, like the the shame that really gets perpetuated in high control religious environments. And one thing I should note too here is that, you know, I'm fully aware that there are religious communities that I think are really pro-social and beneficial to people. So those are not the communities that I'm addressing. Uh, those are not the types of communities that I'm addressing. Um, I'm addressing more religious environments that have been harmful in some way to people or that feel very high control in people's lives and so when i know that that's been in one of you know that's been in my client's life and they're asian what i see is that that shame and the control that's so inherent in those sorts of environments hence also like there's this parallel where i think in a lot of ways it fits in with a lot of the most painful parts of the asian and asian american experience especially around shame as a motivator and duty as a motivator and you know, needing, like feeling this need to do the right thing for people in power, which, you know, I think in a lot, in many Asian families, like it's your elders, you know, your parents, like the people who are your caregivers. And so then when you bring the church in, you know, this sort of, in this high, sort of high control religious circumstance, then you have these like twin dual things that are pushing you 
toward feeling ashamed and feeling like, you know, you have to be someone that potentially you are not and, you know, where you potentially have to hide parts of yourself. And so in a, in a lot of ways, I think they kind of feed into each other, kind of twin painful environments. Yeah, and in many ways together. makes sense that you're talking about anti-oppressive lens mm -hmm. to do this type of work. What might treatment look like? You know, I think to kind of back that question up a little bit in recent years, especially a lot of my work has turned toward liberation psychology and community psychology models because I truly and firmly believe that individual well-being is completely inseparable from collective and community well-being. And I think really the only way any of us are going to survive this moment is by rooting into our communities. And so in terms of treatment that really informs you know my treatment with clients where a lot of you know especially the initial work i'm trying to do with people is helping them contextualize their experiences because i think a lot of trauma are you know experiences that we have in our body like shame that get decontextualized from the things that cause that shame and so if we don't have a container for it then we end up putting it on ourselves so then people what I end up seeing is that a lot of clients struggle with a lot of shame, self-blame, a lot of guilt that they might not even fully understand, you know, why it's there, but it's in their bodies. And so a lot of the work I do, and recently, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Shin Hee Han and David Eng, and they wrote that book, Racial Melancholia, Racial Dissociation, about mm. Asian American mental health. It's a fantastic book. And they recently came out with a new paper, actually, I think, I don't know if they are, if the new paper is out or if they are still writing it, but I attended a talk that they did recently. And Shinhee is a psychologist. I think David is like a, I think he's like a literature professor. I can't remember where, but their new paper is on Asian American rage, actually. And one thing I really loved that they said that I still am thinking about is that, you know, in addressing trauma, we can't only address the mother, we also have to address the motherland. And that so resonated with me because I think in, you know, even thinking about religious trauma in, you know, I'm going to speak more specifically to a Christian context. If we zoom way out into the history of Christianity, colonialism was inherent in the way that Christianity spread. And so when I'm working with BIPOC communities, you know, including Asian American communities, like there's virtually no, you know, there's virtually no one in that community who, you know, whose ancestry was not touched by colonialism at some level in some way. You know, so if we even zoom out, like a lot of what I do is a lot of psychoeducation around, you know, kind of the impact of these types of history, the impact of intergenerational trauma, the way that you know, this type of trauma might live in the bodies of their ancestors and get passed down. You know, I usually do a little work with my clients around, you know, what do you know of your parents' histories? And, you know, for a lot of, I think, Asian American folks who I work with, a lot of their families, you know, have experiences of war or being refugees in some way. And these things impact them, you know, even if they did, they themselves did not experience these events. And so, a lot of the initial work, at least, is around contextualizing, you know, how can you build a container for yourself and almost create like a new narrative for yourself around why you're feeling 
a lot of these things and it's a lot the thing i like about liberation psychology is that it's so much about reframing internal distress as a really normal reaction to like environments and social structures that subjugate people including you know in their history and in their ancestry and especially for those with marginalized identities and i think this model can really help people understand their relationship to power structures and also maybe the ways that they might participate in power structures and so to me i think therapy is only one step toward like integrating and healing and learning something new about how you want to live your life but i like that it doesn't regard client distress as a personal flaw but rather expression of immersion in something that's really alienating and something that's really painful and yeah. so i think it helps people demystify a lot of what they're feeling and honestly i mean a huge chunk of the work that i do with my clients around religious trauma or you know any sort of oppressive structure is first demystifying it let's create a new frame yeah i really love that how it really puts the person into context of the environment and rather than placing the onus and responsibility that this issue or this particular problem that you're experiencing is inherent to you but more so it is a byproduct of your environment and these things are happening through generations and to consider the impact of how the generation must survive and must cope and adapt as we're thinking about treatment, the, the other common thing that, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about too, which you've already mentioned this, but I want you to think more about, you know, if there are any additional pieces, and that is, in your career as a person of color, what were some challenges you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? That is such a good question. And you know, like, as I was thinking about this question, and I think as I said earlier, like when I first entered this career, I absolutely did not understand the impact of internalized oppression, like even in myself. And so thinking about, you know, the way that we, I just talked about a lot of people don't have a container for shame. I absolutely did not have a container for why I was feeling a lot of the things I was feeling. And to top that off, I'm a little bit about my own history. I entered graduate school about two years after graduating from a predominantly white evangelical Christian college. And I no longer identify as Christian, but I did at that point in my life. And in that space, I had unconsciously absorbed just a massive internalized oppression that I didn't know was there. And so, you know, even with the, even with the encouragement of like that professor, you know, who saw me, I still entered graduate school really believing that my voice wasn't worthy of being heard, that other people knew more than me, everyone else was smarter than me. And again, I went back to what had worked for me before, was I essentially survived graduate school by keeping my head down. And I didn't make any waves, but this came really at great cost, I think, to my own like internal resources and kind of like to my soul at a certain level like I'm there's a memory honestly that's coming up for me where I had just like successfully defended and my chair told me you know she was like you know Valerie you're one of the stars of our program and I really just want you to know that and it should have made me feel really good but I felt so terrible I went to the bathroom by myself and cried oh, after gosh. that you know and 
I think that to me was the culmination of like, great, like I did so great in this program, but at such cost, like I felt so broken at the end of it, you know, and I felt like, I think that was kind of a turning point for me actually of like, you know, I think I, I will disintegrate if I continue to do things in the way that I've been doing them up to that point. And, you know, I have compassion for my younger self going through that. Like I honestly still remember things that like white professors in my graduate program said to me that quite frankly were really cruel and very problematic that I can't imagine they would ever have said to a white student. And, you know, rather than talking about me, even thinking about, you know, the resources that were available back then, there weren't that many resources. So I, you know, what I did was that I felt so ashamed about it and I tried to hide it. I didn't tell anyone, I went through it by myself. And I also didn't have the vocabulary to name what was wrong or why this felt so wrong. So I think ever since graduate school, um, I think leaving academia, you know, was a really helpful step for me. And um, I feel like I've gained a lot of that vocabulary and knowledge around phenomena like internalized oppression and systemic oppression and the impact of colonialism on our field. And I've done a lot of work in my own personal journey, like to refine my own identity and I, you know, for all the, like, honestly, all the academic trauma that I endured, you know, I'm glad I stayed in the field. There was a point where I considered leaving the field because I was so honestly traumatized by the environment. But truly, I, you know, along the way have also met so many mentors, friends, and colleagues who they uplift me and they encourage me every single day, you know, and I hope that we do that for each other. And I think they are who keeps me here, you know, that they are who keeps me going with this work. And, you know, I think that's part of why, you know, so much of what I try to tell my clients and so much of the message I try to get out, not just to my clients, but to my community is to root into that community, because I truly don't believe we can do this ourselves. And I think, you know, by engaging with that community, I was able to reflect on all the parts of my identity I had ignored before. And I feel so much stronger and more grounded as a result of these experiences. But it was a really long journey to get here. And it's a journey I'm still on. You know, I'm still learning every single day. Well, thanks for sharing that experience with us. In fact, it was very disheartening to hear that reaction uh, where you were given positive feedback. Hey, great work. You know, you're one of our most successful students and not to be able to appreciate that uh, mm -hmm. it is, is very disheartening and also recognizing the pain and suffering and the sacrifices you had to go through in order to become this so-called top student which mm -hmm. you know comes at a cost there's also this reinforcing right. mechanism you're being verbally told and sort of bolstered in a way mm -hmm. in the eyes of some image that you're performing well mm -hmm. but we have to question and slow down and say wait at what cost and is this what i want to do Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that with Absolutely. us. And of course, the the solution, you know, as part of our episode's theme today is rooting in community, especially when the community that maybe we were once a part of may have been uh, non-welcoming, hurtful. And so the idea, what you're sharing here is how do we seek out community outside of the existing structure? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely.
Okay, okay. Well, Dr. Yo, thank you so much for sharing everything that you've discussed with us, your insight, mm -hmm. and, and frankly, a very brave journey that you've taken and continue to take. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how do we support you? Yeah, honestly, I stay in conversation with each other. I love that you're doing this podcast, for example. I think you know, you're giving voice to a lot of people in our community, you know, within our field who might not otherwise have this sort of platform. And so, you know, like I see you as doing as a really big part of doing that sort of work. And I think the more we all do this work, the more we shift toward a better and more just world. And I truly believe that, you know, and so I think, you know, the support to me looks like just kind of staying connected with each other and, you know, continuing to stay in conversation and speaking out about these things, you know, that we've been silent about for so long that our field, I think, kind of continu continues to encourage silence about. Yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah. this is a part of the process. Okay. Well, Dr. Yo, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, you're so welcome. And thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate this space. A huge thank you to our listeners. If you like what you've heard, please share and subscribe to our podcast, People of Color and Psychology. Other ways to support us include registering for continuing education courses or making a donation on the Multicultural Counseling Institute's website. We value your input and appreciate your continued support. You can send us an email, a message on LinkedIn, or send us a voice message on our website. Until next time, this is your host, Jack Zen.